0: I just said, what happened? And he said, you know, something went wrong in your daughter's procedure, we need to get you inside. And I feel like I probably finally just yelled, like, is my daughter alive? And he said, at this moment, she's still alive. Hey,
1: I'm Ethan and I'm a 13 year old who lives in Louisiana I love listening
2: to Compelled because it makes me a stronger believer in Christ, and it overall just makes me feel better. I love listening to the episodes that really just speak
1: to you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode.
2: I'm Paul Hastings, and you're listening to Compelled, where we use gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Our last episode was with Tyrone Summerall, who began stealing as a young boy. If he wanted something and didn't have it, he would just take it. Eventually, as an adult, Tyrone was sentenced to prison for multiple armed robberies. But as Tyrone was groping through the darkest moments of his life, there appeared a spark of hope. Again, that's from our last episode with Tyrone Summerall. This week, our guests are Curtis and Deanne Lewis, who took their five-year-old daughter, Natalie, in for a routine heart procedure. But during the operation, something went horribly wrong. The doctors shared the terrible news that Natalie would never recover and possibly not even survive. And just like that, Curtis and Deanne were thrust into the most difficult season of their lives, faced with decisions about trust, forgiveness, and ultimately hope. So gather around, lean in, and join us for another compelling story from the Kingdom of God. I met Curtis and Deanne through some mutual friends back in April. They live near Los Angeles, but I happened to be passing that way back in June and was able to sit down with both of them at their home church where Curtis also serves on staff. Curtis and Deanne both came to know Christ at young ages and eventually met each other while Curtis was attending the Master's University in Southern California. They started dating in 2000 and then got married a few years later and both began coaching soccer. Today, they have four children, ages 10, 7, 5, and 3. But our story begins a few years ago, in the winter of 2015, when their second child, Natalie, was just four months old, and they noticed that she didn't seem to be doing so well.
1: What happened is I was off, you know, Gallivanting around the country <laughs> uh, like I normally do. And um You we, were on a work trip. I was on a work trip. We she was going from a breastfeeding to the the bottle and that transition. And she just wasn't taking the bottle very well. You know, it was a couple of days where it just wasn't getting good hydration. So she took her in uh in order to say she's just gonna be dehydrated now. We just gotta get some something in her and the, the pediatrician out here, um, it wasn't our local pediatrician, didn't even touch Natalie, didn't even just, oh, are you a first time mom, you know, that whole deal. And so Deanne came home, but the next day, um, Deanne just had that motherly intuition, like something's not right. So she drove back up to Santa Clarita where we lived and to our pediatrician and within 30 seconds, 911 was called because Natalie's heart rate was to 280 to 300. And so her body was just shutting down. I mean, your body just can't function that way. Her lungs are filling with blood. So I get a phone call that, you know, ambulance is being called, you know, we don't know what's going on, all that kind of stuff. So I'm trying to get on an airplane, you know, get back across the country. She's, you know, not knowing what's going on. And so that was kind of the beginning of our journey. We found out that she had SVT. So it's super ventricular tachycardia. Um, We were in the uh, Northridge for a week, kind of stabilized, got medication. SVT is actually quite common. And I think it's one in every 2,500 kids has SVT. Um, Hers has an additional thing that makes it much more dangerous called WPW, Wolf-Parkinson's White Syndrome. And what that does is it sends electrode backwards and where you can send your heart into AFib. And so that's why hers is just
2: a little bit more. It's not just the high heart rate. It could actually send her into AFib. As it turned out, SVT was something that Natalie had been born with. And this small quirk with her heart would sometimes cause it to beat much more rapidly than normal. Sometimes for just a few seconds, which for most people is completely benign and many people with SVT never have to seek treatment. But in Natalie's case, her SVT episodes could last for hours, which could actually be deadly. But thankfully, because Natalie had been diagnosed so early on in her life, Curtis and Deanne were able to work closely with their doctors to manage her SVT. So despite her condition, Natalie was able to enjoy a very active childhood.
1: Ballet, ballerina.
0: Soccer. Sassy. Smart, super smart. Like everything was easy for her. You would not know. Yeah, you wouldn't look at her. And I mean, she she was like the life of the party. Yeah, just a super tender hearted kid, you know, where Titus... Titus really needed Natalie, you know, I would be like, okay, time to play, clean up the playroom. And Titus is like, oh man, it's so messy. And now he's like, okay, mommy, like would catch me off guard sometimes where I'm like, who are you? <laughs> How is this kid like so sweet and tender hearted and trust the um, Lord
1: at a young age, you know, and.
0: And so just like vibrant, you know.
2: So for the first five years of Natalie's life, though, somehow y'all got the heart rate down. Like, how did you guys yep, do that? So it's
1: through medication mm-hmm. that just Three keeps the day. heart heart rate down. We started finding that um, it was kind of messing with some other stuff as well. She was we had a couple of scares where, you know, her eyes are rolling in the back of her head. You know, it was messing with some other glucose. numbers or glucose numbers and that kind of stuff. And so that's really what started leading us to. Saying okay, we need to get her off these medications. actually doing other things to her, and so we knew a, a surgery was going to be coming. It's a catheter ablation. It's a very quote unquote simple procedure. So they take a catheter, which is a very 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 small tube, right, and they go up the femoral artery, um, and that goes up into the heart. And there's SVT is an extra pathway. And so instead of it going to the lower ventricle and going all the way around, it stays in the top and just gets faster, faster, faster. It's almost
0: like your heart, like self-shocking itself because the impulses are coming back around and it jolts you.
1: So essentially the catheter ablation is to go and to, to burn... The, the extra nerve. And so that has, it forces it to go through the entire system of the heart in order to have your heart beat correctly.
2: Closing down that extra pathway. Exactly.
1: She needed to be the right age, the right weight. And so when she got five years old, we went to the pediatrician and um, cardiologist. the cardiologist and um, he said, yeah, you know, I think we're ready to do this and kind of talking through it.
0: And it's relatively safe procedure. It's like the safest procedure that you can have on the heart. So exactly. usually the greatest risk is that it doesn't damage the nerve
2: enough. And then you have to come back and do it again.
1: You do it again. You uh, sometimes you would do a pacemaker. There's other things that if, if you didn't want to do medication you could do, but yeah, it would, it would technically heal. And then you, you wouldn't actually kill the pathway.
0: So well, I met the doctor when I took nally for her appointment. Um,
2: her pre-op basically. Her pre-op.
0: Yeah. Super kind Curtis. I ended up calling Curtis, just so he could be on speaker. Just a very methodical doctor, you know, knows his stuff. He's, He's like the, the peak. Man in he, this area. he is, yeah, for the electrophysiology stuff. Pacemakers and heart ablations is totally his thing.
1: So we schedule it for April 2nd, 2021. At first, I think we were trying to not make it a big deal and, you know, we just like, surprise, we're going to get this done. And um, Deanne talked with one of um, our good friends and just said, you know, this is a really great time to walk your daughter through this. There are fears, don't just spring it on her, but start walking with her. And so Deanne just did a really good job of talking with Nally and bringing people in and having people pray for her and send notes to her. And so it went from it's not a big deal at all to our church just sort of made it this huge deal where people are writing cards and notes and, you know, and we're like, it's just an outpatient surgery. Like it's like, no one does this when you go get your wisdom teeth, right? Um, and so it was just like this weird dynamic. But um, the uh, the Thursday night before, which was Awana, you know, all the kiddos get around her in this big card and praying for her and just really almost sending her off. And we drive down on Thursday night and stay at a hotel because we have to be there super early. Was it six a.m. 6 a.m. on Good Friday to kind of start the procedure. So we didn't want to have to deal with everything. So we drove down there and um, stay the night. And I remember specifically we had Natalie, she stayed up late. She never stays up late, but just in the bathtub and playing with these little unicorn dolls and so it had that process and got up and this is right in the midst of COVID and so I drive; we drive in the morning and I have to drop off Deanne and Natalie because I can't even go in you're only allowed one parent in the hospital and I remember really specifically Natalie just saying daddy I don't want to do this and I remember saying oh it's going to be okay it's going to be okay and that those are haunting words because um, it wasn't okay
0: So yeah, Curtis dropped us off and I carried her in and we went through all of the process of checking in and going through all the different departments that they have us go to and give her this juice that relaxes her. And they told me, you know, she's not going to remember this juice, like takes away your short-term memory. Yeah, they let me walk her back and um, walked all the way to the cath lab and... Gave her a kiss and said goodbye. The procedure started at eight. They were supposed to call us at ten, and I had a female nurse tell me, "I'm going to be the one calling you." So Curtis got to the hospital. He tried to come in. They told him no. So I ended up going out, and I had told the doctor, "You know, I don't think they're going to let Curtis come in." He's like, "We'll try and if you can both get into the um, cafeteria, I'll meet you there. Otherwise, we'll figure out like where I can meet you." Um, So they had this healing garden. They call it a healing garden. So we had decided to just sit outside and wait. And at about 10, you know, you're kind of just waiting for the phone to ring. And then my brother had called. So we visited with him. And I think you weren't concerned, but like 1030 rolled around. And I'm like starting to feel like nervous. Um, So it was a little bit after 1030, my phone rings. And I'm like, okay, here it is. You know, and the first, it was a guy. And as soon as I heard it was a guy's voice, I was like, something is wrong. Her face went white, and he, he says to me, uh, "I need to talk to Nally's mom." This is, you know, and I said, "That's this isn't her." And he goes, "Where are you?" And I'm like, "It is not good. <laughs> you are asking me where I am." I'm like, we're outside. And he's like, I need you to come inside. And now I'm like, logistically, we can't both get in. And I finally just said, what happened? And he said, you know, something went wrong in your daughter's procedure. We need to get you inside. And he's, we're going like logistics back and forth. I mean, there's people all around us. We're just sitting outside in this garden area. And I feel like I probably finally just yelled like, is my daughter alive? And he said, at this moment, she's still alive. We go and run into the lobby, and I told Curtis, call your parents. I called my mom, and three weighed my brother in, and I was like, you gotta pray something happened. They they started taking us back, and we're trying to ask questions, and they took us to a little side corridor, and they told us her heart had been perforated at 10.02, and then it took 15 minutes to stabilize, not even stabilize her, to get her to the point where she wasn't gonna die. Um, and then they had to do emergency surgery, open chest surgery because her heart couldn't pump the pericardium around the heart. The sack around the heart had filled with her blood and so now her heart's compressed. So they needed to get in there to release that pressure so that her heart could perfuse her body with blood. Um, You know and you just think like well she got immediate care. I mean she's in the best place possible right? And they told us like You know, obviously we're concerned that this there could have been brain damage. There's 15 minutes that we were doing life-saving measures. So we don't know what that could have done to the brain. So they take us to this little room and we just waited. It just seemed like forever. And then it's the realization, you know, they had to cut her chest open. You know, you're just thinking of all these things that this was supposed to be so simple. And now she has sternotomy and you know and all this different stuff not even necessarily contemplating like how close she was to dying
1: it, it felt like okay this went really wrong you know we're going to be in the hospital for a couple of days she obviously had our chest cut open our minds were just not in
2: the
0: worst case scenario
2: realm of where, where we were headed but while the full gravity of natalie's situation was sinking in for curtis and deanne God was already nudging and tugging on their hearts in ways that they never would have expected.
1: You know, the amazing thing was the doctor that uh, that was doing the cardiologist that did the surgery. He was just there with us the whole the whole time.
0: We didn't even know if they would let us see him um and he came in and you know, just explained what happened and at the very end he just said, "I'm so sorry." I don't even understand how this could happen. You know, he's just very methodical. So even in his mind, he's like, I can't make heads or tails of how this could have happened. You know, so in his doctor mind, he's trying to figure that out while also dealing with just the emotion of it. You know, we just got a chance to tell him, like, today's Good Friday, and we know that Natalie's trusted in Jesus. And if this results and you coming to know and trust in Jesus, then that's worth it for us. And, you know, God gave the grace for us to answer in a loving way at that point, but you didn't always feel feel that loving. Um, I think it was that day, Curtis went up, I think you just said like, we don't blame you. Yeah. Finally got to see her and it was like a flood of doctors and nurses Attempting to care for her, her body temp was rising. So trying to keep her temp down.
1: A huge amount of the the temperature is inflammation and secondary injuries in the brain and swelling and all that kind of stuff. And so we were still in the life and death stuff, and we didn't even realize it.
0: Yeah, they wanted to do uh, what was it? The EEG, where they put probes all over her head to see if she was going to have seizures. So. Curtis was having a pretty hard time at that point, so he stepped out and they were, it's like a lube that they're putting all over her hair. And so I was just kind of sitting, taking a breath, and she started to stir and open her eyes for the first time. So, you know, your heart just jumps to hopeful and um, that she's responding, that she's moving a little bit. So Good Friday, you know, roll into Saturday, we're seeing like good responses and then Sunday rolled around and it became more evident that we're not seeing, you know, everything that we want to see. So, yeah, at that point we were hoping for our Easter miracle. Curtis had come back for church and I was there. But as Sunday progressed, uh, you know, really that 48 hour mark, you're seeing we're not seeing all the responses that we would want to see. So Natalie was still intubated at that point. And they said, you know, we want to wait until Tuesday to get an MRI. So we want to keep her intubated for that and just kind of see where we're at, see where the issues are. They're, they were showing signs, you know, that she had brain damage. So what did that mean? So we get to Tuesday. They took her for the MRI and... That night they just came and told us like worst case scenario. Every part of Natalie's brain had been damaged. It looked like that she had been underwater for 15 minutes. Like there was no healthy parts of Natalie's brain. And after they gave us the results of the MRI, they took us down and the doctor from the floor said, you know, tomorrow we're going to extubate her. We need to know what you want to do if she can't breathe on her own.
1: Yeah, just decisions that you wish you'd never have to even consider.
2: Curtis and Deanne were reeling. What had started out as a beautiful day had turned into a living nightmare. And now they were confronted with the hardest decision of their lives. More on that after the break. I started listening to their show about five years ago when we first launched Compelled. And since then, they've become one of my go-to sources for understanding current events from a biblical perspective. But they pull no punches. In fact, they tell the facts just as they are, even when it requires sharing uncomfortable truths. Maybe that's why they're one of the Apple Podcast's top 100 news programs. Join me and thousands of other Christians from around the world who listen to the world and everything in it. Just search for The World and Everything in It in your podcast app or visit wng.org. As a teenager, I had so many friends whose lives were transformed by attending a Worldview Academy leadership camp. For many of them, it was the highlight of their summer because it was such a spiritually engaging experience. And today, Worldview Academy's mission continues— If you have a student between 13 to 18, and you care about equipping them with biblical truth so that they're prepared to stand firm and engage with the culture, then Worldview Academy is what you're looking for. Worldview Academy's week-long summer intensives cover topics in apologetics, servant leadership, and evangelism, all while building deep friendships with like-minded students. Your student will engage with 25 hours of interactive teaching, addressing questions like, how do I know that the Bible is true? Does God really exist? Who defines what is right or wrong? And what difference does that make in my life? Since 1996, over 42,000 students have called this one of the best weeks of their life. And with 18 summer intensives all across the country, there's certain to be one near you. Learn more and get 10% off your student's camp registration as a Compelled listener by using the promo code COMPELLED at worldview.org. Register for camp today at worldview.org while spots are still available. And remember to get 10% off using the promo code COMPELLED. Welcome back to COMPELLED. The doctors had just delivered the terrible news to Curtis and Deanne Lewis that the brain of their five-year-old daughter, Natalie, had essentially been destroyed. There were no healthy parts remaining, and there was absolutely No hope for recovery. The doctors were planning to take Natalie off of the ventilator the following morning and wanted to know how Curtis and Deanne would like to proceed if Natalie could no longer breathe on her own. By this point, hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people from Curtis and Deanne's church, workplaces, family, friends, friends of friends, and even strangers were all praying for Natalie, asking God for a miracle. But so far, her condition only worsened.
0: So she was increasingly getting to the point where she was just in a lot of pain because there's so much brain damage. Neurologically, the body is just like, what is going on? So it kind of like supercharges it in yeah, a sense. So it's essentially
1: called neurostorming. And so neurostorming is almost like your body trying to regulate and it can't. So it's like slamming the gas and your whole body is almost being electrocuted. And so the writhing and the pain and the stiffness, the groaning, it is, it is, it is brutal.
2: It is brutal.
0: And you just feel so guilty, you know, because she can't leave and you feel like you should be there to comfort her, but you're not offering any comfort. You know, you can't even hold her because her body is just stiff and extended and, I was throwing so many medications at her. You know, she doesn't even have any comprehension of what's going on. Um, So I ended up calling Curtis and saying, I need you to come get me. And I left.
1: I came and got her, picked her up middle of night. It's probably like three in the morning. And uh, drive her back to the hotel and we go to bed. And the next morning, wake up and I go get in the shower. And I just felt... When I was in that shower, God was saying, you need to let her go. And I came out and I said that to Deanna and she said, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think so. So we made the decision that if if she can't breathe on her own, that, that we were going to let her go.
0: So we got back over there. Um. They came to extubate her and then they had an emergency come in. So it was like, you know, you're all. Um, So they came in back. It was like probably around lunchtime. And they extubated her and it was like three or four seconds. Yeah,
1: it was as long as three or four seconds, I think, of my life. But when she took that, that breath, it was like, wow like just this huge relief that, okay, this is the first hurdle. And like, we, we get to keep our daughter.
0: It was like the first huge relief, but then we rolled back into massive neurostorming that Curtis was referring to. And I found myself there another morning by myself that we had gotten set up at Ronald McDonald and two of our kiddos had been approved to come. So we had had them the night before. And I just called Curtis that morning. I mean, she's just writhing in pain and you can't hold her. You can't cradle her. I mean, just a five-year-old child with neck wrung back and all the way to like toes pointed downward writhing in pain and just text like some of my friends saying I'm praying that God would just take her like this is miserable how how do I take this child home to my other kids how do I like this is terrifying for me to watch how do I how do you do this you know and I so I called him I said I need you to come like I can't and we would just kind of take like 30 minute shifts you know, just trying to be with her. They were throwing diazepam, which is Valium at her, um, dose after dose after dose. And then it would work for maybe 30 minutes and then we'd be right back at it, just storming and groaning and in pain. And we even had some of our friends from church and my brother and his wife come down and just pray outside the hospital. So we looked down and we could see them just praying for us and, um, which was such a blessing. We met with neurology again that day. And that's when they said, our only hope for your daughter is that one day she'll smile. That was it.
1: I remember telling them the story of Lazarus at that point, like, you know, God is capable of more, you know, and that they were gracious (laughs) to sat there, listened to the Lazarus story. Um, but I don't think any of them were.
0: And we were cautious. We didn't, we had one of Curtis's former players was able to come in and see us because she was a nurse in, in the NICU floor. And she just told me, Deanne, don't promise. Don't, don't tell people like that God is going to heal Natalie because you don't know, right? We're not promised that God's going to heal her. And she said, I've just seen that damage of the gospel when people say, I know God's going to heal me or heal my kiddo. Um, So we were very cautious to say, you know, we don't know. We don't know what God's going to do. We're going to pray that God would heal her, um, but we're not promised that healing, and we want to take whatever God's going to give us. So even in our stories and in our sharing with them, we tried to be very cautious to not say that God was promising to heal Natalie, but also trying to recognize that God can heal and that he has the power over whatever they're saying is impossible or possible.
2: The Lewises were still at a loss. God had answered their prayer and allowed Natalie to continue breathing on her own. She was still alive, but the neurologist continued to caution them against holding out hope that she would recover. In fact, they told Curtis in the end that if Natalie survived, she would probably be blind, never walk again, and never regain her mental faculties. And of course, in the midst of this, Natalie continued to experience excruciating pain caused by her neurostorming. And now her body began to show signs of fatigue.
1: It's running a marathon and you can only run a marathon so much before all of the, you know, the lactic acid buildup and your body just can't handle it and so you essentially Kidney's poison down. poison your body.
0: So we were like what do we do to intervene here because her body has been going in this state for too long now. So we decided to basically do a medically induced coma hoping her body would reset. And we went back the next morning just to check on her and they had said like this is the best time for you guys to go get a couple of days with your kids you know, she's not going to be responsive. She's going to be fully sedated. Um, and you know, go, cause we had, we, I don't think we had both been with all of the kids back at home. You know, a couple of them had come down and we had taken turns, but so we came back up here and I remember it went over a Sunday because you just feel so guilty being here. Like your little girl's back there by herself, you know, other people are caring for her. And
1: it's a, it's a constant battle of guilt. You feel guilty when you're at the hospital because you're other kids and you feel guilty when you're at home because you're not there. And it's really amazing. One of the doctors, the anesthesiologist, Dr. Tan, when we were getting ready to go, he said, I, I will stay here for you. He would check. He brought her a, a bear. He prayed over her. And so just knowing that there's there was a believer there, a brother there who was, who was fighting for you was pretty, pretty amazing.
0: So we came back and... <laughs> Natalie's hair was all done up. Somebody had come in and put it in a braid and wrapped it in a cute bun and had ribbons in her hair. And then they had a sign across her bed with her name on it. It was just so sweet just to see them love on her when we were, you know, away taking care of our other kids. And then the nurses started saying to us, like, I'm telling you, I think she smiled, like, you know, and we're like, yeah, right, you know. And then over the next couple of days, she started waking up and was smiling and not necessarily responding to things. She couldn't say a single word. She couldn't eat anything. She couldn't hold up her neck. She couldn't squeeze your hand. She couldn't move her leg on command. I mean, every like bodily function besides looking at you was incapable, Mm -hmm. but you just saw life in her eyes. They had told us that she was gonna be blind and we would just have the TV on. So the TV's up in like the top corner, but the sound was coming from behind her. And one day I'm kind of getting down on her level and I'm like, she's looking right at that TV and that's not where the sound is coming from. Like there's no reason for her to be looking in that direction. I told Curtis, I think she's looking at that TV.
2: Over the next three months, Natalie continued to show improvement. There were never huge leaps and bounds, and sometimes there were even setbacks. But gradually, over time, Natalie began to improve. She couldn't talk, sit up, swallow, or control her head, but she was there. They could see it in her eyes. And while she wasn't entirely responsive all the time, they could tell that she was trying much of the time. And after 110 days at the hospital, Natalie's neurostorming had improved to the point where the doctors allowed her to finally return home. And while Curtis and Deanne were overjoyed to be a complete family again, Natalie's medical condition brought with it a new set of challenges. It's like you're going home and like, how, how do you do this?
0: And getting, you know, the medication schedule, you're talking about nine medications, like multiple doses a day. So you're trying to, you know, figure out how to feed your kiddo with a G-tube.
1: I mean, our refrigerator was full of red medicine bottles because you had to refrigerate them and you had to, we have timers. Deanne had like 20 timers on her day. Like, okay, trihexafenil, Okay, diazepam. Okay. You know, just all these different, her clonidine patch needs to be changed. Like just all these different, we're not talking about like little drugs. We're talking about like, we've heard people say, I've never heard a kid on that much diazepam. I've never seen a colony didn't patch on that high. that high on for pediatrics. I mean, just this crazy amounts of drugs, which are all addictive. Right. And so then this, this process of, you know, how do we, how do you do this? Where do you lock them? How do you make sure your other kids don't get into this stuff? Like all these extra, we have a little, you know, little kids when you're around, in. you know, so just the extra precautions and thinking and this and that. And so when we brought her home, she was, we put her in our bedroom because essentially she couldn't manage her saliva. And so she'd be sleeping and start choking. And so you're jumping out of bed in order to get over there to her, in order to turn her over and just this, this fog. It's almost like, um, you know, having a newborn, except for knowing that that newborn might die every night. And so it's not just, I'm not getting sleep, but it's like this Anxiety. anxiety, you know, that's this heavy, and you don't even realize you're, you don't even realize you're in it. You know, it's probably how people feel when that war or something. It's just this constant that you you don't even realize it's there
2: because it's just constant. It was exhausting. And this level of being on high alert constantly continued for months without end. But God continued to give them the grace to endure and care for Natalie's needs while she slowly recovered. Natalie responded extremely well to being home around her siblings, and gradually, Curtis and Deanne were able to wean her off from medications one by one. After corresponding with another family who had experienced a traumatic brain injury, the Lewises began using a hyperbaric chamber for Natalie, which is essentially a pressurized chamber filled with oxygen that a person lies inside of. It helps with oxygen absorption and is frequently used by scuba divers. Curtis and Deanne were shocked when after the treatments, Natalie regained movement in one of her arms. Natalie continued relearning basic motor functions and by the end of the year had regained some of her swallowing control. But one more major breakthrough came in January of 2022 when God opened the door to another unconventional treatment.
0: Really, through that time of coming home, she reverted back to like n- completely nonverbal. Yeah. Um, was not saying anything consistently. So, we had started doing sign language, which for hands that can't function <laughs> is luck. extremely difficult. So, it, I feel like you can't really give it an age because mentally more there, but physically still very limited. Um so it's hard to just tell how much cognitive she has but know. I would
1: say that we did not know how much cognitive reality was going on right and a lot of that was because of the physical expressions um she had hyperspasticity which is the you know involuntary movements of you know flexation and um so I think we're trying to figure out how do we help with a lot of the physical not knowing how much mental and a lot of that I think is each drug that we weaned her off we actually said, oh, she's there. Like you saw more life in her eyes. You saw more cognitive reality start kind of putting itself out there and you had that kind of stuff. But really, was it January or February of of 20?
0: Well, January of 2022, we went to see a functional neurologist in Arizona and he kind of works hand in hand with a stem cell doctor there, but the stem cell doctor is booked out like a year and a half. So we had gotten on their waiting list. Um, this is a stem cell doctor that it's less invasive. They take Natalie's own stem cells and then insert them in her sacrum and try to get them up into the brain to promote healing. Yeah, so we went to see Dr. Bohr in January of 2022. And he says, just go over to the stem cell office. Like maybe, you know, just see what they say. Once they see you in person, I mean, Natalie's story is obviously compelling which is, this is totally not my thing. This is totally Curtis's thing. He's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's drive 45 minutes just to go into their office. I'm like, this is insane. So we go to walk in. He opens the door for me. I'm like, you walk in first. (laughs) So we just walk in and we're like, hey, we just, you know, Natalie's on the waiting list. We just wanted to say hi and see where the office is. And they walk us around the office and we were probably there for 30 minutes. And his assistant comes back and she says, We have a cancellation for the beginning of next week. Do you guys want it? Yes. Yes. You know, I mean, all the logistics are running through your mind. You're like, we don't care. We drove all the way home, came back, I think on Monday or Tuesday, and she had her first stem cell procedure at the end of January, 2022. And really six weeks later.
1: Start a baby battle. Like truly like what your one and a half year old might be doing. And,
0: bah, 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 and like, which turned into dad 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 It was da. crazy. And you know you're hesitant to say anything because we saw some progress in rehab, you know, and had seen her starting to do some sounds, but it just the floodgates opened. And by the anniversary, you know, was saying multiple words. Yeah, this is
1: it. so April second, twenty twenty two. Yeah, we're having her say words, actual words that you can understand. It
0: was very quiet, very hurt. She didn't know how to take in the breath correctly. So, you know, or we take a deep breath and spit out a full sentence. She would quietly get out one word. Um, I remember she, she was playing cards with one of my friends. So at this point she can sit up and she's playing cards. And my friend asked her something and she goes right there. And I was like, did she just say that? She's like, yeah, I think she did. <laughs> you know, so it was like, okay, you know, you're just, again, like holding holding on hope but trying to be careful how hopeful you get um, but now we've just kind of kept a steady consistent therapy of the mnri in newport beach the hyperbaric chamber the stem cells so now she's had just multiple of each she's eating on her own she drinks on her own she's very close to walking on her own
1: yeah so at the second anniversary because she still had the g-tube in and we really hadn't used the G-tube because we weaned off all medicine. She's now eating with us. Um, so we were like, do we keep it? Do we not? She hates it. It gets caught on her shirt. It, you know, it's just anything that makes her feel like she's not normal, she hates. So we finally like a year got a wheelchair and she hates the stupid thing. Cause it's like, I don't wanna be in a wheelchair. I wanna try and be normal. So on the second year anniversary, like.
0: One of the nurses came and helped me pull it out.
1: And her response was she says, I'm normal. I'm normal. And, uh, yeah, just amazing. So it's, that's the cognitive reality for a kid to say, I'm normal, you know? And, you know, it's really interesting because I think even in the midst of suffering and pain and hurt, God is still really gracious. Like if this happens to Titus, I mean, he's a mess. If this happens to Haven, she's angry at the world. And, and this child who happens, I think to be most like my wife is like determined what I want. I'm going to get, it's not going to be easy and there's going to be tears and there's going to be some attitude with it, but I'm going to do this. And so it's really like, God is gracious, even in the midst of suffering. He's really kind, even in the midst of pain and trial. And it's, it's quite amazing because, you know, being in ministry and being a pastor and wanting, wanting God's glory to go like, there's 9,500 people on Facebook that are hearing Natalie's story and hearing about God's goodness and following her and and worshiping Jesus because of this little five, now seven-year-old. And it's like, you know, God, and we, we ought to know this, right? There is hope. And when you're able to start saying, you know, Natalie will be healed. I mean, she will walk again. She will talk again. She will run again. It might not be until the resurrection. But we have the resurrection. Like there is healing, there is joy, there is newness of life that will come. And when you start being able to see, right, fixing your eyes on Jesus, right, he considered it joy. How do you do that? Well, I think you have to you have to look to eternity.
0: You know, Natalie was memorizing her Iwana verses, and it was talking about giving thanks in all circumstances. And so just walking Natalie through, you know, does that mean we we call it her brain owie? You know, does that mean we thank God for your, for what happened? And she goes, but mommy, I got a brain owie. And I said, I know, honey, but that doesn't mean we have to like it. <laughs> you know, but we can still thank God for what he's doing. And that doesn't mean that our hearts are fully there yet either, but just trying to like guide your kids through that process of, Not understanding, you know, this is such a big concept. How do you explain it to a little kiddo? The goodness of God through tragedy and heartache and in all of our minds, if God's good, then everything should be perfect, right? And that's our finite minds, not understanding his good and amazing will. But I also look at it as like God totally spared Natalie when she was four months old And I took that gift, no problem. You know, I was totally willing to take that gift. Do I take this gift too? Where he's saying like, I have a story that I'm writing and you're not going to understand all of it, um, but we're still wanting to accept it because he's doing something in our lives and growing us and refining us and leading people to him through Natalie's story.
2: Natalie's story is still being written. Curtis and Deanne won't fully know how God has used it until they reach eternity, but they've seen plenty of ways it's made an impact already. But there was one particular avenue where they saw God use Natalie's circumstances that they never would have dreamed of. More on that after the break. You love Christian testimonies. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to Compelled. But imagine if you could enjoy Compelled stories from Christians throughout the ages, including those who've already passed away. Well, that's what our friends at YWAM Publishing are doing through their Christian Heroes book series by retelling the incredible stories of Christians like George Mueller, a man of prayer who ran an orphanage for 10,000 children in England who trusted God to miraculously provide food and shelter for those orphans, sometimes on a daily basis. Or Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband was murdered by the Akka tribe in Ecuador but chose to forgive and move in with the tribe to share the gospel with them. Or Brother Andrew, who during the height of the Cold War, smuggled Bibles to Christians behind the Iron Curtain, all under the noses of communist border guards who could have imprisoned him for life or worse. These are the types of stories that YWAM Publishing is printing, and their books are written for kids ages 10 and above, but frankly, adults love them too. They've published 50 of these biographies so far, and we just partnered with YWAM Publishing to bring you five of my favorite stories. These are the Christians that have inspired my faith and millions of others for decades, which include the three testimonies I just mentioned, as well as Corey Ten Boom and Amy Carmichael. We're calling it the Compelled Christian Heroes Bundle, and I actually worked with YWAM to select these five specific stories, and they agreed to drop the price in half just for compelled listeners. So it's $30 and includes free U.S. shipping. To buy this bundle for yourself or to give to a friend, visit compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. That's the letters Y-W-A-M. compelledpodcast.com slash YWAM. And trust me, if you love listening to stories on Compelled, you're going to love reading these stories too. Have you ever wondered why traditional math curriculums seem like they have a one-size-fits-all approach? Well, that's because they do. The curriculum writers are making assumptions about how quickly your child is progressing, even if your child is actually struggling with a concept, which if left unchecked, can become a major hurdle to learning and hurt their confidence. That's one of the reasons why CTC Math exists. It's an adaptive online approach that automatically changes depending on your child's unique learning needs. By adapting to your student's pace, learning becomes not only more effective, but also more enjoyable. Can you imagine? No more tears about fractions. The interactive questions change in difficulty based on how your child is progressing, ensuring that they're challenged at the level that's right for them. Not too hard, not too easy. It's just like having a math tutor who knows exactly what they need, when they need it. And as a parent, you'll love the detailed reports. You'll get to see their progress in real time and celebrate their victories and understand their challenges. Ready to give your child's math education a major boost? Just visit ctcmath.com and sign up for a free trial and experience firsthand how personalized learning can transform your child's approach to math. Again, that's ctcmath.com. Welcome back. Curtis and Deanne have already seen God using Natalie's story to touch others, and they shared many of those stories with me, but there was one in particular that stood out. And it had to do with the cardiologist, the doctor who made the mistake during Natalie's original surgery. He's the same one who met Curtis and Deanne in the waiting room and explained to them about the accident and apologized. For many doctors, even that interaction of meeting with the family at a single time to apologize would be terrifying not only because of the personal guilt about having caused such traumatic pain, but also because of the potential admission of liability in the event the family or their insurance company sued. But this situation turned out very, very differently. And it really began that very first moment in the waiting room when Curtis Indian forgave the doctor for what happened.
1: I'm sure he had to break so many rules to be there with us. I would assume that most doctors would have stepped away. And that's really a, a huge bummer, but I don't want to enter into that pain. He was there with us, entering in that pain with us.
0: And, you know, he just came multiple times over the next couple of days. I want to say it was Monday morning. He came in and he was going to have another procedure and we just prayed with him, prayed over, you know, just.
1: It was a, it was a five-year-old girl. So uh, another five-year-old girl. Yeah. And so just knowing like, wow, that would be hard. So yeah, just getting a chance to pray over him. And at this point, like people know we're Christians, you know, when really bad things happening and you're just very like, here's who we are, here's what we're about. And the crazy thing is, is no one tells you to shut up. Cause I can't really, because you're in this horrible situation. So it's just this weird, like freedom that you have, even atheist doctors, like they might roll their eyes and stuff as they walk out, but like, not to your face. Yeah. You're, you are, who you are, and you're in this horrible situation. And if that's what you need, then that's what you need. And so we just have this freedom and this openness to just share with people. And, you know, he would come in, it's really interesting because he would come in for not minutes, he would come in for hours and spend time with us. I mean, so what do you do for hours? You talk, you share life, you get to know him. He gets to know us. We talk about kids, we talk about family, we talk about soccer, we talk about, you know, just you just are starting to share life with each other, and no one else is coming in, right? And so you can't have your own family because of COVID. So this is who you have, and so it's just a really weird bond that like infused our hearts together, and you know, you're crying together and you're laughing together and you're, Hey, we want to go get a cup of coffee together. And it's really interesting because we've gone and visited him afterwards. And this guy is like way busy, you know? So to really look back and say, man, this guy was taking hours a day to be with us. That was impressive. Like when you really look at it, that's shocking that this doctor would care for us this much. I would venture to say many doctors would have exited right? Like, okay, you know, I don't want to deal with this emotion. I don't want to deal with this hurt that, that
2: I caused. Like I'm going to feeling a guilt perhaps. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm curious when you first interacted with him after the surgery, you were quick to say like, hey, it's good Friday. What about for you, Curtis? Were you having those same thoughts or was it a struggle for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I ought to, I'm a pastor, right? That I should be the one who's that. And I was a little bit mad at my wife. Like, Like I know what you ought to say and my feelings and my emotions weren't there. And yet several hours later, like the spirit is allowing me to give this man a hug as he's getting ready to go to another surgery and saying, it's not your fault. And so it's just, it's credit what the spirit does, right? The spirit's a reconciler and he wants to take, I mean, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when you take a step back, you start realizing like, Suffering is a part of the normal human condition. Like we all have this and what do we do with it? And how do you handle it? And you look at all the things that Christ has done and understanding that the gospel is so beautiful inside suffering. And there's something about hardship and suffering that as you walk through it, it, it changes you. And so I think if we as Christians would recognize that suffering and persecution is actually a part of the Christian experience. I mean, anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted, it says. And this isn't persecution in the way that that passage is talking about, obviously, but suffering is a part of the human experience. And when you understand that God loves you enough to put you through things, because maybe there are things that you need to learn through this suffering, it changes the way that you interact with suffering. And you can really start living out Romans 8. God works all things together for the good of those who love him, but called according to his purpose. For that doctor to stay in that moment with us. I mean, I'm not shy in the gospel, right? I'm like, I'm talking to him. He knows he's a sinner. Like I've talked with him, like, you know, so it's not like he shied away with that. But it's, there's something beautiful inside of walking together through things that there's almost this brotherhood that sort of is created because this is this shared experience that our own family didn't even experience that day in day out. So it's just this weird dynamic where the normal thing is to hate this man. And the, the godly thing is to love this man. And because of God in us, the hope of glory, he's really allowed us to not only love him, but his wife. Um, We've been to Disneyland with this man. Like that's really weird. And yet it's not.
0: His wife has been able to share with me a little bit more of just how hard it was for him. You know, he really, we wanted him to share, but he, I think, wanted to protect us from how hard it was for him. And just that she would hear him in the middle of the night going over the procedure. You know, how could this have gone wrong? What happened? And
1: He almost quit. It, yeah, it, it was so hard for him that he almost, almost quit.
0: He and Curtis have had some significant conversations you know he he's jewish in background but doesn't really have hold to jewish truths and has this philosophy i don't even know if you would call it a philosophy that he would only ask god for 10 things in his life and what did he say natalie was number seven mm-hmm. that he went to god and asked for something so just like really unique conversations you know
1: yeah he'll he'll give me a call and say hey Curtis, we need one of our talks And that means let's, let's talk about the gospel again. And they're like two plus hour conversations that we're just getting into. And so it's like, God, use this, give him eyes to see. Yeah. Right. So the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. They cannot see the glory of Christ in the face of God. Right. We see that in second Corinthians. So it's like, God, you, you have to open this man's eyes up and yet why not? Like God, God wants to save people. So that's a prayer that man, how cool would that be? That Easter service, right? That where, where this doctor comes to know the Lord and he gets to spend forever in heaven. Why? Well, because of an injury to a five-year-old girl.
0: So just being able to share with them. And um, it's been a huge blessing that they've been so faithful. And you're right. We did have multiple people tell us, encourage us even to sue and to I, pursue I, I that had process. people
1: call me and say that I was being sinful. If we don't sue that, the, the, the reality, you don't understand what's coming, the expenses, all that kind of stuff,
0: you know, there are, there are expenses, There's
1: huge expenses, but just really trying to work, work out what is, where is our responsibility? What does that look like? How do we, how do we navigate if we, if we sued him, we couldn't talk to him anymore like, let's say you sue and you get $1.2 million or whatever it is. Right. And, and you know what people do, they stop partnering, they stop praying because that's what we do as Americans, right? The needs met, we move on. And, you know, in that process, we, we actually start looking at what that, what does that mean? What does that look like? We want to do our due diligence, enough people around us, were are saying you at least need to look into it. And it's really interesting just to kind of find even all the red tape that goes through, you have certain people that they they want to just destroy doctors, right? And just will take everything. You know, doctors only have so much liability, you know, and then it goes into their homes and their families and all these other things and you know, it's really interesting as we made the decision not to. Um, we only had a year. Yeah, you had a, a year in California, but we made the decision not to, which was a huge it was a huge relief just to make a decision and money will be taken care of because of God's people and
2: because of God himself. And he has. As our conversation came to a close, I asked Curtis and Deanne to describe Natalie today.
0: Her joy has really returned, but finds it hard. She's much more shy in groups. Mm-hmm. So, you know, her friends have a harder time interacting with her because they're used to her taking the lead, you know, and being the one to instigate, the play and the interaction and the questions. So there's been a lot more tears under her. And now as she wants to play with her friends, but physically there's still a limitation and they can't understand her as well as we understand her at home. So I would say at home, she is like all in the mix, you know, having a great time, fighting with her siblings, getting mad. You know, she's said things like, Haven's in my grill, you know, <laughs> just totally silly. And, you know, you're trying not to laugh because you're trying to parent, but yet your heart is just like,
1: she just said grill, I can't believe she said
0: <laughs> that, you know, and, um, just having fun with her siblings and then getting annoyed at them and sticking her tongue out, which she shouldn't be doing, but you know, all the normal kids stuff.
1: So one of the things that maybe your listeners could do is go to pray for and join the the Facebook prayer community. And I know a lot of times people don't have Facebook, but we have found that people who join that community, pray for her more. It's out of sight, out of mind. It's just a reality. And scroll all the way to the beginning. I think sometimes seeing some of the pictures and the visual reality, you will worship Jesus. Mm, yeah. You will, you, will, you will say, praise Jesus we as you walk. We've literally had
0: doctors tell us, I mean, non-believing doctors say, like he's a miracle, mm-hmm. you know, that they have not seen somebody experience this much healing from a brain injury of her severity. And I mean, that's just amazing. You're talking about a non-believer admitting that this is a miracle. What an opportunity for us to be like, yeah, let me tell you about that miracle, yeah. you know, that God has even more important miracle of salvation for them, right? Mm-hmm. And we're just enjoying the blessing of natalie's physical miracle with still hopefully more to come but
2: yeah pray for yep guys thank you thank you thank you god bless you know suffering is complicated and that's because it's the natural result of sin in our world And while Natalie's recovery is a beautiful miracle and one that should be celebrated, as Christians, it's also important to remember what Curtis and Deanne said. We are never guaranteed to receive healing while still here on this earth. We can certainly ask God for healing and humbly pray that he would, but he does not owe healing to any of us. In fact, suffering is a long part of the Christian faith god chose to spare shadrach Meshach, and abednego from the suffering in the fiery furnace and miraculously save them but he also let stephen be stoned to death jesus healed the lame blind sick and even raised lazarus from the dead but he still let the thief on the cross die alongside him i don't know the mind of god and anyone who claims that they do is wrong but i do know what the apostle paul writes in romans eight twenty eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that includes even those who are suffering. Natalie still has a long journey of recovery in front of her, but the same God who has miraculously preserved her life is still at work today. In fact, I just saw a video clip filmed two weeks ago of Natalie walking on the beach by herself. What a miracle. If you know someone who should hear this episode, please take a minute and share it with them. To learn more about Curtis, Deanne and Natalie, visit our website compelledpodcast.com and pull up the show notes for this episode. We'll include links to Natalie's website, her Facebook page, photographs, and a way to give toward her needs. Also, Curtis and Deanne just published a devotional about Natalie's experience called When Life Crumbles with a foreword by John MacArthur. If you'd like to win an autographed copy of that book, we'll be holding a drawing on our show notes page. Again, you can find all of that by going to compelledpodcast.com and looking up this episode. By the way, if you'd like to support Compelled, One of the best ways you can do that is by thanking our sponsors. We are very selective about who we choose to work with and not every company out there is interested in working with a Christian podcast like ours. If you ever hear us advertise for a ministry company or product that you already use, can you just shoot them a quick message, let them know that you're an existing customer and thank them for supporting Compelled? And of course, if you're not a customer but you become one, can you let them know that Compelled sent you? letting our sponsors know about their return on investment is a great way to help us continue creating stories just like these. Today's story was edited by Will Jackson, sound engineering by Zach Fowler, and our associate producer is my wonderful wife, Sarah Hastings. Special thanks to Garrett and Gavette Hampton for introducing me to Curtis and Deanne. Stay tuned for a sneak peek from our next episode. When Steve Richardson was just a child, he and his parents traveled halfway across the world to New Guinea and moved in with a tribe of Stone Age cannibals. Their purpose? To share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the ends of the earth. Their reception? Well, you'll have to tune in to find out. I'm your host, Paul Hastings, and you've been listening to Compelled. We'll be back with another compelling story two weeks from now. We'll see you then.
0: We came back with
1: five or six really courageous warriors from this enemy tribe, who were literally taking their lives in their hands by escorting mom and dad and me, by that time I was seven months old, uh, into the Sao'i domain. And we rounded the last bend in the river after paddling from sun up. The sun was now setting and silhouetted against that setting tropical sun was a throng of 400 Sao'i warriors waiting to welcome us. The word had gotten out. So, just 400 warriors. Just men. With their headdresses. Some of them are holding long drums. They're holding spears, bows, and arrows. Ready for anything.
2: One last thing before I go. If you'd like to meet up this year in 2024, I will actually be on the road for a few events, either speaking or exhibiting at some conferences. I am still nailing down all the details, but already I know that I'll be at the Texas Homeschool Convention in Fort Worth from April 18th through 20th, the other Texas Homeschool Convention in Houston from May 30th through June 1st, the Home Educators Association of Virginia Convention in Richmond from June 6th through 8th, and there's also the chance that I might be at some other events in Louisville, Kentucky and Nashville, Tennessee later in the year, but we haven't finalized those details yet. If you live near any of those locations, then I'd love to meet you. You can also see our latest up-to-date calendar of events at our website, compelledpodcast.com slash events. And I hope to see you there.